0: Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time to gather, our time to study, our time to focus on what your word has to teach us. Show us the the truth of your scripture in such a way that it's impressed upon our hearts and we can recall it and remember it and consider what it has to teach us. Help us to put all this, often a puzzle, together so that we can understand the future and the promises and the hope. Pray that you would do that this morning for us, Lord. Amen. All right, so we were covering the uh, covenants. If I go back here, there is six covenants. We covered the Noahic, the Abrahamic, and we're in the middle of the Mosaic or Israelite covenants. So who remembers from last week, which of these that we've covered so far is a conditional covenant? The, the promises depend upon the, the people fulfilling their part. Which one? Number three? Somebody not even here last week and got it. Yes, Mosaic. Not, not you were here, Michael. Kristen wasn't here. Uh, both of you guys are right. Number three, the Mosaic covenant. Noahic is universal. God's promise to never flood the earth again. And it has no stipulations on Noah's part. Abrahamic is universal. Um, there was a sign that was given to Abraham to show that he was part of that covenant. But the, the sign is not Abraham earning the promises of the covenant. The sign comes after that's circumcision by the way, Uh, him him and his offspring are to be circumcised to show that they're part of this covenant that God made with Abraham. Uh, If they disobey, they'll be punished, but all of Abraham's seed is not punished for disobedience. When it comes to the Mosaic covenant though, that is conditional. If they disobey, the nation's destroyed, taken away, and there is really no restructuring of that covenant. Okay, so let's fast forward back to our discussion. So we covered Noahic, and we talked about how people misuse the uh, rainbow flag right now this month. And uh, that was a sign of of God's covenant to never judge the earth in that way. People are parading it around. All right, the Mosaic Israelite covenant is uh, God's revelation of the law to Israel. And it's a supreme act of grace. Dr. Block says this. He's an Old Testament scholar. A unique sign of privilege. What I like about Dr. Block's writings, and I heard him do a conference at Kerville Bible Church, is he shows how the Old Testament is, is about grace. It's not just about law. It's God's grace to his people. He saves them out of Egypt. That's their physical redemption. And then he gives them a law to live by. That's his, both, both acts are his grace. Redeeming them, giving them a law to live by. Jesus redeems us in the New Testament. He gives us commands to live by. But we wouldn't say that the New Testament is all law and no grace. Now the difference is the Old, they had this covenant. They could not live it out. They could not obey it. And in the New, we have Jesus' commands, but we have the Spirit. And he's put his Spirit in us so that we can obey. Again, promises of the New Covenant, which we'll contrast with the Old later. Did we get this far? Is this the first slide on it, by the way? All right, so where do you find the Old Covenant or the law of the Old Covenant? It starts in Exodus 19 and then runs all the way through the end of Deuteronomy right before Moses dies. And then all the writings in the Old Testament after that are pretty much pointing back to the covenant, the law, or reminding Israel to obey it. The only ones that don't really touch on that are, are the wisdom writings, but they'll even mention the law sometimes, don't they? The Torah is mentioned in Proverbs. Ecclesiastes. Uh, Job doesn't really talk about the law of God because it probably, Job was written before Mosaic law came about. But uh, there's still some, some things pointing to the law in Job. But this was for Israel. Uh, look at Exodus 19.5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. So this is their mission statement. We have a mission statement, the Great Commission. This was Israel's mission statement. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Then he goes on to start the Ten Commandments and then flushes out the whole law. And Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is kind of a recap for the next generation. But here's their mission statement: You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. They were supposed to be holy to the Lord, doing sacrifices for God's people attracting other nations because of their holiness. And people would come and they would ask, who is this God that you worship? And they would often convert if they moved into the land or even were on the edge of the land. You have people like the Queen of Sheba coming up. You have all kinds of examples of Gentiles being saved in the Old Testament. And that's not because Israel went to them, except in today's sermon with Jonah. It's the only case where Israel goes to somebody else People come to Israel to find out about the true God. So it's based on the covenant with Abraham. It's not replacing it. It's not replacing it. But it's, it's a, a further revelation of God to Abraham's seed. And, and the seed is the nation. In this case, we talked about other ways that seed is used last week. But the Mosaic covenant, the MC, is made with the generation of Israel going into the land and following And in Deuteronomy, Moses even says, I did not make that covenant with our fathers. So it's not made with Abraham. Abraham didn't have the Mosaic law. He knew right from wrong. He had God telling him some things and blessing him. But he did not have all the stipulations of the Mosaic law to live by. Uh, The only really one that's going to be duplicated is the circumcision um, ritual there. Mosaic covenant was a divinely instituted rule of life. That's the key. It's not a way of salvation, but a rule of life. It's to govern God's people. His covenant people, Israel. When they come into the land, they didn't even have this law in Egypt. They're called Israel, the Hebrews, the Jews, if you want to use that term. That wasn't until later that the word Jew came about. They did not have the Mosaic law until they came into the land or right before they're going into the land. What did it do? It regulated their life, their conduct. You have the Ten Commandments there in Exodus 20. Then later, after that, you have the the stipulations about how to live together, social life, and then worship. So really, these are the main three things the law deals with. Commandments, just general commandments, the the big ones. And then you have the stipulations of how to live that out together. And then you have directions on how to worship God. That's in Exodus. And then uh, Leviticus deals with particularly the temple, and the sacrifices. So this, this is really explained even more in Leviticus. I'm just reviewing from last week to catch everybody up here. The Mosaic law was given to Israel, not to Gentiles. That's going to become important. Write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. So the Mosaic law was given to Israel. Other people were not expected to follow it. God doesn't judge the Assyrians and the Babylonians because they didn't follow Mosaic law. He judges them because they just didn't follow basic morality of right and wrong. Basic, everyone knows in their heart what is right. What Paul says in Romans 2 is the law of the heart. Even the Gentiles who did not have the law still have a law called the law of the heart. That's how we would refer to it in New Testament language. Remember, the Noahic covenant, not only was it a promise, but God also said don't, don't kill because if, if you take a life, then I'll take your life, God says. Man's life, that's, that's the capital punishment. Everyone knew that murder was wrong. And when, so when nations come in and slaughter everybody for no reason, that angers God. Again, uh, reference a sermon today when I start on Jonah 1. The Mosaic law revealed God's character to Israel. So who is this God? How do we know Him? How do we please Him? That's a big concern. We take it for granted because we have 66 books of the Bible. When this is being written, they had nothing. Remember, Moses is writing Genesis through Deuteronomy. Before Moses, you had nothing written down. Okay, we've heard about Abraham. We've heard about Yahweh, the God of Abraham. But how do we please him? How do we live for him? And so it told them. It told them that he's holy. And that this characteristic is the basis for the entire law, God's holiness. Does not save anyone, though. Does not save anyone. The New Testament makes this clear because by the time Jesus and the apostles, by that time, by, you know, what's that, 1,400 years after Moses, they had twisted it. They had thought, well, we're all born under this law and uh, we're we're not redeemed out of Egypt physically, so how do we get saved? They began to teach that obeying the law, earning God's grace, was what saved you. Now, not everybody, but... But that's kind of what the Pharisees and the rabbis and the Sadducees were teaching. But Paul says in the New Testament, no, the works of the law cannot be justifying anyone. And he even goes back to Abraham. Before there was law. Don't think the law justifies you because before there was even the Mosaic law, you had Abraham and he was declared righteous. He was justified. What does it mean though to be under the law? Well, it means that for Old Testament saints, they were under it as a rule of life. They followed the Mosaic law not for salvation, but for sanctification. That's the key there. That's what uh, God gave it to them for. It did not cross out the Abrahamic covenant. So this is Abraham. This is Moses, Mosaic law. One doesn't cancel out the other. Paul makes this clear as just an analogy, just kind of an illustration in Galatians. He says, what I'm saying is this. The law, that's the Mosaic law, which came 430 years after Abraham, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to nullify the promise. So you had Abraham with his covenant and then 430 years later, after they come out of Egypt, God gives them the Mosaic covenant. And what Paul is saying here is you can't go back and cross that out. There's a time gap, sure. There's a difference, you know, in what's going on with God's plan there. But the Mosaic doesn't cancel out the Abrahamic. And we looked last week at how that's an everlasting covenant, unconditional. All right, so this is uh, where we were last week. Picking up with new info here. I just got a question. Did the Jews uh, just basically negate faith as because they had the law? In other words, did they just kind of forget that? Abraham had faith in that. I think so, yeah. Uh, less, it became less and less. Much like we think of Roman Catholics today. Mm-hmm. They would acknowledge faith. They would say faith is important. They would say you have to have faith. But they would they say... Kind of into else. It just gets, you know, added to it. And what are you going to focus on? What you can do? Or faith in God. You know, you're going to focus on what you can do, and particularly when you have children born into this under the law. Now, what do you tell your children, and and how do they live by this law? But there are still people that were called righteous. You know, you have, even in the New Testament, you have Simeon. um, You have Anna, the prophetess. You have Zacharias. Jesus says, uh, parents, Joseph and Mary, they're called righteous, meaning that they are truly uh, loving the Lord, have faith in Him, and then living this out to please him, to be sanctifying to them. So, what are the purposes? What did God design it for? Well, he, he wanted to expose their sin. And Paul brings this up. He says, that's what the law was for. It revealed my sin and it exposed my sin. And that's what it does. So anybody who comes into contact with it, even a Gentile who's not under the law, but then comes into contact with it, they ought to be more convicted. They ought to feel like, wow, this is a God that demands holiness. And if, you, if they come to believe that it's the Creator God who governs all things, and now you see what He actually demands, it really brings you under conviction of sin. It was conditional, and it was a means through which a specific generation of Israel, so each generation has to obey this in Israel, they could experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional, and it, it's an everlasting covenant. But how do you know what generation is going to receive those blessings? No generations fully received the blessings. We looked at the map just for the land promised last week, remember? And there's not ever been a generation in Israel to this day that's received all the land that God promised to Abraham from the Euphrates to the river in Egypt. It's a huge amount of land. Even under David and Solomon, it, it didn't even approximate those boundaries. But each generation, depending on their obedience, could receive more blessings from God. So in the time of David, when Solomon began his reign, they're experiencing tremendous blessing by God. Why? Because, uh, you know, David has done away with the the idols and, and he is worshiping the true God. He wants to build the temple. People are following their leader. By the end of Solomon's reign, you know, there's all these idols and, and uh, holy places to the other gods. And then it just is a downfall. And then every once in a while, kings will come along like Josiah, destroying all the idols, trying to live holy. God blesses them. Then the next king is sinful again. So, it's up and down with the Mosaic Covenant. This also acted as a temporary guardian for Israel. Again, this is from Galatians 3. It's a guardian. It's a tutor for Israel until Christ came. Because Galatians are struggling with this idea of what's the purpose of the law? I mean, Paul, you're telling us we don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to live like Jews. Then what's the whole point of the law? And Paul, One of the things Paul says is it was a guardian for Israel until Christ came. It was to show them their sin. Show them how to live holy and point them to the Messiah. Jesus says when he comes, he says what? I came to fulfill. I came to fulfill. And then he shows uh, those, those guys on the road to Emmaus what the, the law was pointing towards. The law of Moses and the prophets. What were they doing? They were pointing to the Messiah. It's a little um, babysitter in a sense. We, they wouldn't use that in ancient times, right? A, a tutor taught the kids, lived there. Um brought them up, you know, spanked them when they were bad. Uh, a guardian, probably a better word, a guardian, to raise them up until the Messiah came. So here it is in Exodus nineteen four through 8. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings, brought you to myself. Now then, if you, if you will indeed obey my voice, so we've already looked at this verse, then there'll be God's possession. And you shall be to me a kingdom, a priest, a holy nation's. So Moses came, now here's the key here, Moses came and he called the elders of the people and sat before them all these words which the Lord had commanded. All these words. So teach your children these words. Every generation has to obey that. Moses reminds them again in Deuteronomy, because it's a whole new generation at that point. So Deuteronomy means second law. It's not a second law. It's just a sort of second series of sermons on the law. But it's been perverted, as I was just saying and forced, uh, asked me about. Some Jews try to make keeping the law a means of salvation. That's what Paul attacks in Romans. That's what he attacks in, in Galatians. Uh, Jesus attacks that idea with the Pharisees. They had, they had raised up their traditions even, not just the law, but even their traditions, and tried to be saved by obeying those. Some Jews emphasize the external rituals. At the expense of the heart, so we'll, we'll, just, we'll just go sacrifice. You know, we'll just we'll just come to church and take communion here and and listen to the sermon, and that means we're saved, right? That's what people today think sometimes. Well, that's what they thought. You know, go to the temple once a year, do Passover, do exactly what God says, and I must be in the good graces of God because I'm doing what He says. But it's not from a heart. And he he goes on to say, even back in First Samuel and all the way through the end of the prophets, he, he gives this idea of. To what? To what is better than sacrifice? To obey. And a person who truly obeys the Lord is someone who's had a changed heart. Someone who loves him from their heart. Someone who's been regenerated, even. And so, it's not the external rituals. Those are things that you do to obey God, of course, but it comes from the heart. And so, there's a big focus, even at the end of the Old Testament there in Micah, there's a big focus on the heart. Jesus comes, and he focuses on the heart. And and Paul focuses on the heart. Because from the heart flow what? Flow obedience to Christ. Good fruit. Some Jews uh, view the Mosaic Law as a means of exclusive ethnocentrism against the Gentiles. See Jonah. When in reality, keeping the Mosaic Law was supposed to be a witness to the Gentiles of the greatness of Israel's God. So they're supposed to witness. Uh, they're supposed to say, look at, look at us keeping the law, not as, to brag, but to show people how to come to know God. Again, it convicts of sin. It points to Christ. It drives to holiness. How do I become holy? Because in the ancient world, everybody wanted to please a God and be holy so that they could get blessings. Today, people don't care as much. They, they worship uh, self. But we'll even see in Jonah 1 where these sailors, uh, they want to know who's the God we should pray to because that's a serious thing. we got to figure out what's going on. Well, Jonah and many other Jews of his day and, and following could care less about the Gentiles being saved and they just want to see Israel blessed. And so the law became kind of a dividing wall. Paul talks in Ephesians 2 about how it is the dividing wall. And Jesus, he's abolished that. Not that he's abolished the law, but the dividing wall that people set up because of the law. Because the Jews said, here's the law. You Gentiles want to come in? You better obey the law first, and then we'll let you come into our faith. That's what the Jews were saying. That's what Judaizers were saying in the New Testament. Galatians, okay, you Galatians, the Judaizers said, you want to be real followers of God? you got to get circumcised. You've got to obey the law. Paul says, no, that's not how it works with Gentiles. So that's perversion. There's, there's a unity to the law. This is important because it's often taught a different way. It's common to divide it up. Many people divide it up into three parts. So there's the moral part. That's the Ten Commandments. That's the principles that God gives. Then there's the ceremonial. This is the ritual or the worship of Israel. How they're supposed to worship the temple. Then there's the civil Right. This has to do with kings and laws to live by. Um, you know, the King James will say sundry laws, various laws of social life. So, uh, this is often taught, and it goes back a, a while in the Reformed faith that it's taught that these three can be divided up. If you talk to a Jew today, or you talk to a Jew then, or you talk to any Jew in history, they always took the law as one set, one group. You can't you can't slice off a piece. Or slice it up into three. It's helpful for study if you want to think about it like that, right? These are kind of general spiritual principles that will even be carried over into the New Testament, right? These are ceremonial and these are civil. But it doesn't have a scriptural authority to separate those. So the Mosaic Law is one law. It's always been considered that way. And it's indivisible. So James 2.10, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. People trying to keep the law? You think you're perfect? Well, when you stumble in one point, you didn't just stumble in the in the um, this one right here and the moral part. James says you stumbled in the whole law because you can't keep it. You can't keep the law, so stop trying. And it's kind of the idea throughout the New Testament. Uh, Paul, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, he's under obligation to keep the whole law. Hey, if you want to receive circumcision, don't stop there. You want to live under the law? Don't just get circumcised. Do the whole thing. Go ahead. You put yourself back under the law. He's saying. You've gone backwards. You've done away with the new covenant. Matthew five nineteen. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments so teaches others shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So you're not to do away with the Old Testament. Not like Andy Stanley's trying to do, right? He's already done, I guess. You can't do away with any of that. Jesus says it's important. It's important. Paul says it's important for teaching. But it all goes together is the point I'm making here. So here's the big question then. Here's the uh, the big debate, which will then have an impact on the new covenant and what we think about it. Are Christians under the Mosaic law? Now, a lot of people will say yes right away because who wants to say we're not under law, right? They, they often think, are Christians under law? I think that's the question. That's not the question we're asking now. The question is, are we under specifically the Mosaic law? Well, the New Testament has a lot to say about that. But you're not under law, but under grace. So again, we're not asking, do Christians have to obey any kind of law? We're just asking, are we under the Mosaic law, the actual Mosaic law given in Scripture? Paul says, you're not under the law, but you're under grace. What well, then shall we sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. May it never be. So there, Paul's already dealing with it in his day. The minute he said we're not under law, what are people going to think? You're saying we don't have to obey God at all? That's antinomian. That's doing whatever you want. And he, uh, he, he deals with it right away. What then? Shall we sin? Because we're not under the law, but under grace. May it never be. Galatians 5.8 But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Hebrews 7.12 For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes a place a change of law also. The Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, you had a set of priests. A high priest, various priests to do the sacrifices. And the new, got a new priest. We don't have priests anymore. We just have one priest. Who? Jesus. Hebrews makes that clear and he says, look, we're not under that law anymore either because we've had a change of the priesthood. You can't have a change of the priesthood unless there's been a change of law also. He goes on in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 18, and 19. For on the one hand there is a setting aside of a former commandment. What's that former commandment? That's the Mosaic law. Because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. It couldn't get us all the way there. It wasn't part of God's plan. The Messiah needed to come if we're going to be perfected. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That's Christ. So Christ comes in. He does bring a new covenant. He does bring a new law. It has some similarities. But but the point here is, don't try to live under the old. You Hebrews, quit going back to the old. Quit getting scared of getting persecuted. Stay in Christ. Don't run away back to Judaism. It was, it was weak. It was useless. It's not going to be the method by which you are uh, declared righteous. That's only through Christ. So the believer, this is a summary here. The believer's not under the Mosaic law today. Because nowhere in the New Testament does it call for the inflicting of those penalties of those who break the law. Again, the law goes together. We can't split it up. If we, if we take what the Bible says, literally, we can't chop it up. And so if we're seeing on under the law, there would be a sort of a civil mention of those laws and punishments. This was dealt with at Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. If you read Acts 15, the problem is these Gentiles are getting saved. They're not living according to the Mosaic law. What are we going to do? Peter's confused about that. Paul goes up. They call him. Actually, they say, come on up come down to Jerusalem or up, depending on which way you want to think about it. And uh, we're going to talk about this. And they have sort of a, a church council, the first church council. And there's there's still apostles there. James is there. There's elders in the church there. And they say, essentially, be- Gentile believers do not have to keep the Mosaic law. And that's the ruling. You don't have to keep the law. And then they re- they say, just don't eat uh, animals with blood. Why? Because that's offensive to Jews. That's offensive. If you're going to go out and... and and evangelize to the Jews, right? You don't cook up a big pork chop, some bacon. That's offensive, right? I mean, that's offensive to them. So uh, that, that's why they said that. But essentially, Acts 15 ruling is you're not under the Mosaic law. You don't have to keep that as a Gentile. So be, be very uh, observing when you read this passage here. And I think we'll come back to it later. And to the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. So this is Paul speaking. He is a Jew ethnically. But he's saying, when it comes to the law, I became like them. So to those who are under the law, who's under the law? The Jew. Jew's under the law. So he is around them. He lives under the law. Why? Because he doesn't want to offend them. He doesn't want to offend them. He doesn't want to eat blood and bacon and and do those things in front of them. Eat fish, you know, catfish and nasty fish. that Peter got to see all those animals, remember, on that curtain that was revealed in a vision in Acts 9, Acts 10, so that he could go and eat with them. And that's why they got so mad because Peter's eating with Gentiles and Peter's switching back and forth. He doesn't know what to do. So Paul says, look, if I'm with the Jew and I'm ministering to Jews and I'm evangelizing them, I'm going to put myself under the law. Not that he's truly under the law, but he's going to live like that. But he himself, he says, is not under the law. Why does he put himself under the law? That I might win those who are under the law. And he kind of puts this here in, in parentheses here. Because again, what do people say? Paul says he's not under the law. First thing that's going to come to people's mind. Are you saying we're lawless? Are you saying we live without law? Are you saying we're antinomian, Paul? So Paul, he's on top of things. So he's always right there. And he backs it up by saying, I'm not actually under the law. But then he goes on here. To those who are without law, who's that? Gentiles. So what does he do when he's ministering to the Gentiles? He lives without law, without the Mosaic law. Though not being without the law of God, but what law is he under? The law of Christ. So don't accuse Paul of being completely without law. There's a law of God. That's just a general phrase. And in the law of God, there's the Mosaic law that he gave to Israel. And now we have the law of Christ that he gave in the new covenant. So he's under the law of Christ when he's with the Gentiles so that he can win those without the law. So notice there's two mentions here. One is the law of Moses and then the law of Christ. Gentiles, he says, when I'm with them, I'm under this law of Christ. But I submit myself under the Mosaic law when I'm with the Jews, even though he doesn't have to a choice. If you get saved in, in the first century as a Jew and the temple's still there, you can choose to still go up to the temple, worship God there till 70 A.D. It's a choice that they had. They don't have that choice today. Temple's gone. Okay, so that's mosaic. We'll contrast it uh, later with the new covenant. Let's talk briefly about the priestly covenant, priestly covenant. Anybody heard of the priestly covenant? I know John has emailed me. I know we talked about it last week. But before that, have you ever stopped to consider this as one of the covenants in Scripture? It is. It's only mentioned one place. It's kind of short. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest. So Phinehas is in the line of priests from Aaron. He turned away God's wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous for my jealousy among them so I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. So you remember what happens here? Is uh, people are bringing in pagan women and committing immorality with them right in the middle of the camp of Israel. This is a... Numbers, by the way. I don't have a chapter. I think it's chapter 25. Is that right, John? Numbers 25, starting in verse 10. So right before this verse 10, this guy comes in, and he's so proud of himself. You know, he could care less about God's law. He doesn't care that uh, two million Jews are going to see what happens in camp. He takes this woman into the tent to be with her, and Phineas is so angry. No one's doing anything. Everybody's just sitting around. Oh, you know, that's just that guy's sin. we got to deal with it. Phineas, you know, grabs a spear runs them both through and kills them immediately because a plague was breaking out in the camp. Everybody was dying. Thousands were dying. So Phineas stops God's wrath by dealing with it. Nobody else would deal with it. So because of that, because he was jealous for God, God says, I give him my covenant of peace. So there's that term. We wanted to see that term, right? We talked about covenant theology last week, but we want to not make up those covenants. We want to see the term there. There it is, Covenant. Remember, that's an agreement made by God with a people or a person in this case. It's for Phinehas and his descendants after him. And it's a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. He stood in their place. He was making atonement because he he, he stood in their place and took care of the thing they should have done. They were about to die if he hadn't done it. Essentially, he saved them physically from death. But look at this, perpetual. What's that mean? Perpetual means what? Ongoing? Eternal? Forever? Which is important, because sometimes people will attach this to the Mosaic Covenant. Was the Mosaic Covenant ever called eternal? Everlasting? I don't think the Mosaic Covenant ever is called eternal, but this one is. This one is. So what is it about? Well, essentially God is promising Phineas and his offspring an ongoing priesthood, which will continue into the millennial kingdom through Zadok, or Zadok, or however you want to pronounce it. So look at Ezekiel 44. Remember in Ezekiel 44, there's this big, huge temple. All these measurements. It's never been built before. Most people that, that take it literally believe that it's going to be built in the millennial kingdom. That brings up questions about sacrifices and what's going on there. and Why is that needed? The Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me. So Zadok and his line have always been faithful. They shall come near to me to minister to me. and They shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. Later in Ezekiel 48, shall be for the priests who are sanctified, <coughs> the sons of Zadok, who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the sons of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. So everybody abandoned God, but these faithful priests didn't. These faithful priests didn't. And Zadok is a descendant of Phinehas. So why why Zadok? Because God promised to do this, but he didn't say when it would actually take effect. He just said it would be eternal, which is into the future. Okay, can you see that? It's kind of small. John sent me this nice slideshow, and I, I like this one here. You've got Levi here. So Levi, from his line comes Aaron. Aaron and the Levites, all the people of Levi are going to serve the Lord. But Aaron's line will be the priest. And so you have various priests, but these two are killed, Nadab and Abihu. They offer incense to the Lord. That's not correct. They thought they would improvise on worship. Strange fire. Kills them. So who's left? These other two guys. And Eleazar is the one. He becomes the high priest. He fathers Phineas. Phineas is the one who's jealous for the Lord. Kills those two that are committing sin in front of the whole camp. And then from there to there, nothing's really happening. In that line of Phineas. This is when first and second Samuel are taking place, right? You have other priestly lines, but remember there's a priest that falls over dead when his two sons are killed. Who was that? First Samuel? Eli and his two sons. And they're wiped out and they have a, they have a son. I think it's Ichabod, if I'm remembering correctly. So there's still a few more Left, but God said He's going to wipe out Eli's family and Eli's descendants because Eli didn't care. Eli let his son sin. He just sat there and watched it. And that's when, when Eli's family dies out, when Eli's line dies out, eventually, in the time of David and Solomon, that's when Zadok is installed as a high priest. So when Solomon builds a temple, it's Zadok, and then it'll go down through his family line all the way. Till the millennial kingdom brings up questions of what's happening now. Where, where are they? Uh, descendants, they, they don't even know who they are because their records have been destroyed in 70 AD. But God knows and he will continue that in the millennial kingdom. It's separate from other covenants. Because sometimes people say, well, you know what? That's attached to the mosaic and it's only when they obey that that's going to be true. Well, Jeremiah's written in and a lot of disobedience is happening. Jeremiah says, repent, repent. Babylon's going to destroy you. And he says, Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day, my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. So there's three covenants mentioned here. What's this one? My covenant of the day, my covenant of the night. Which one's that one? Seasons will come, right? The sun's going to come up every day, basically. Noaic, Noaic right? The Noahic. I mean, we don't recognize it like in that language, but that's essentially what he's saying. You can't break that covenant. If you could, right? If you could, so that day and night would be all messed up, then so my other covenants, they're not going to be any good either, God says. And so he mentions two as an example. There's one with David. That's the next one we're going to talk about. And then there's this one with the Levitical priests. Right? My ministers. So these are, these are covenants. Three of these are mentioned here. This is the Davidic. And this is the uh, priestly. God says these three, they can't be broken. They're going to continue. They're going to continue. The mosaics is going to disappear. Hebrews talks about that. But this priestly one, it's going to continue perpetually into eternity. Or at least until the earth is remade. All right, Davidic covenant. When your days are complete, this is God speaking to David, so I don't have a reference here. For, there it is. is, Second Samuel 7, 12-16. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you. I, your descendant, singular. Who will come forth from you I will establish his kingdom. That sounds like Solomon, right? He'll build a house for my name. That's certainly Solomon. He's going to build a temple. I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon doesn't live forever. His line dies off. Hmm. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. That could be Jesus. Working backwards here. Jesus is going to have a throne and his kingdom forever. He's a descendant of David. He'll build a house for my name, but not a literal house, but it'll be a spiritual house. But then we come to this next passage here, when he commits iniquity. That That's not Jesus, because he didn't commit a sin. I'll correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, some say this is all Jesus, and that part about iniquity is just a hypothetical. I love him so much that I would discipline if I needed to. Others take it, and I think this is probably better, is that the, the near fulfillment is in Solomon, but these right here on the ends are specifically pointing to Jesus. That's the far fulfillment there. So establish the kingdom, and the kingdom will be forever. So that's coming. Jesus is going to reign over the kingdom forever. We talked about the kingdom a few weeks ago. But then there's this part about Solomon in the middle here. So what is the Davidic covenant? Well, it's understood throughout the rest of the Bible too as uh, the fact that David's name will be made great. That's true. A place and a home of their own will be provided for Israel. That's true for a while until they're taken away. But God's going to still fulfill that eternal forever promise. Israel will be given undisturbed rest Did I have that there? I don't think I quoted all these verses here, did I? Yeah, if you go on, I think I just quoted 12 and a a few verses in there. But if you go on, it says, um, before that, I'm sorry, before 12, Israel will be given undisturbed rest from all of her enemies. From all her enemies. That's not happened yet. And then David's to have a child yet to be born who will succeed David and establish his kingdom. First is Solomon, but it's not long before... Solomon fails, and then every king after him fails. And so that's why they're looking for the Messiah when Jesus comes. They know David was promised a descendant on his throne forever, and they've all failed, and we got taken into captivity, and we've had no king since then. So they understood it in Jesus' day to be a perpetual, everlasting covenant. But it's just that God didn't say when he would always have a king on. There will be a time anyway that they would not have a king on the throne, and then Jesus would come. So the son, Solomon's going to be the one who builds the temple, not David. The throne of his kingdom will be established forever. The throne will not be taken from Solomon, even though his sins are a cause for punishment. So remember, Solomon sins, but his throne's not taken away. So this does apply mostly to Solomon in the beginning. But David's house, throne, and kingdom will be established forever, which it makes this an eternal covenant. So God is so clear in Scripture. He says the word covenant, and then he says perpetual, everlasting, and forever to let us know it's eternal. We don't have to guess at these. We don't have to guess at these. It's unconditional. God takes the initiative. He doesn't ask David to do anything, does he? He takes the initiative to indicate that he will cause the covenant to come to pass. There is a conditional element, though. It's not wrong to say there is an element in it that is conditional. What's that element? Whether the descendants of David would continually without interruption, occupy the throne or not. God just says there'll always be somebody on the throne, but he doesn't mean like we think, that every generation will have somebody on the throne. God's just saying, into the future, I'm going to promise you that there'll always be somebody on the throne. Solomon, a few after him, then a time of no king on the throne. Right now, there's no king, literally, on the throne upon the earth over a nation called Israel. That's what they were looking for. Disobedience might bring about chastening, but they never are going to have this covenant completely set aside. And it's reaffirmed after repeated acts of disobedience on the part of the nation. They're still looking for it after the nation has been taken into captivity. And Christ, the son of David, came to offer the Davidic kingdom after generations of apostasy. So Jesus shows up. He is a son of David. He is the king that will rule. They talk about that in Acts. They go back into this Davidic covenant and start quoting things in their sermons and acts that apply this to Jesus. So what's, how do we know this is pointing forward? It's not just Solomon. Well, Psalms 2, 72, 89, 110, and 132 pick up the idea and point it forward. They point it forward. We've, we've studied or uh, looked at Psalm 110. Ascension of Jesus. Come up here, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under you. made them a footstool under your feet. Then you will reign. Psalm 2. My son will, will rule with a rod of iron. He will, he will crush the nations, kiss the sun, or pay homage to the sun now while you can. These are looking forward to this Davidic messianic king. So according to Jacob, back in Genesis 49, there's going to be a scepter and a ruler's staff come from the tribe of Judah. So That was long before the Davidic covenant. And then the prediction of the end times leader is called David their king. That's in Jeremiah and Hosea. That's after David has come and gone. And and the prophets are still saying it's in the future, this Davidic king. Promise of a specific branch of David's line. So don't look to to Solomon because, hey, there's a specific branch coming. And all these prophets talk about that. Now this has universal dimensions. The blessing of the righteous rule, the promise Davidic seed was to extend to all nations. We get a hint of that in the Old. Now, it doesn't get brought out until the New. How are the Gentiles going to be brought in? The Jews, who weren't really uh, too concerned about that, didn't focus on these passages. But there's hint. There's hints all throughout the Old Testament. And how specifically is it going to come to pass? What covenant is this going to be a fulfillment of? Well, partly of the Abrahamic, but specifically also of the Davidic. There will be Gentiles brought in according to those Psalms. Peter brings this up in Acts 2. That Jesus presently at the right hand is at the right hand of God in fulfillment of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 verse 1. And everybody's debating what's going on with that. What's happening in Psalm 110. What's Peter doing in Acts 2? How does he apply it? I think the best view, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God now, but he'll rule from the Davidic throne in the future, after his second coming. So here's what's happening. When When the apostles preach a sermon, they quote from the Old Testament. They're just pulling one verse and saying, That's the Davidic king. And you're supposed to, as a Jew, pick up that whole psalm and realize that's the Davidic king. And all that stuff Psalm 110 talks about, that's coming. That's coming with this Jesus. That's going to happen in the future. So they're referencing the first verse and saying that that's Jesus, the Davidic king, and you're supposed to have the idea that the whole thing is going to be fulfilled in the future. Revelation 3.21, Jesus makes a distinction. He says there's the Father's throne and there's his throne. He says... He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. How many thrones we got here? There's two, right? Who, whose throne is this? Me and my throne. That's Jesus' throne, right? And then the Father and his throne. And we know it's two. He's not talking about the same one because he's making a comparison here. I overcame. I follow the Father's will. I went to the cross and I went to sit by the Father's throne. Now the person who overcomes... In Revelation 3.21, the one who resists uh, temptation, resists sin, resists turning away from Christ, apostasy, they will overcome and they will sit on his throne with him. Revelation 11.15, in the case of Jesus Christ's reign is future. Seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become now the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. All right, last one. Okay, it's unconditional and eternal. No one argues about this that's a Christian. Everybody's arguing about Mosaic and Abrahamic and how that plays out. No one's arguing about the fact that these are unconditional and eternal. But we have to go back and realize, where did they first come up? They are promised to Israel. Promised to Israel. Jeremiah 31 through 34. Let's just look at one of these. Let's do Jeremiah. Uh, Ezekiel expands it, especially Ezekiel 37. But let me show you Jeremiah. Now who's Jeremiah and Ezekiel written to? Who are those written to? Are those written to Jews or Gentiles? Old Testament Jews, right? Not New Testament even Jews. You wouldn't even say that, but just Old Testament Jews. So uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. But I'll make a new covenant. So it's not one that he's already made. This is something completely new. Is a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So specifically, God starts out with his promised elect nation. He's going to make a new covenant with them. It's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So the fathers here aren't Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the fathers, Moses, and those fathers who came out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So in the future, those days uh, indicating in the future, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each to his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And Ezekiel adds that the Holy Spirit will come and cleanse them. He will come into them, take out the heart of stone, give them the heart of flesh. This is a beautiful covenant. And it's promised initially to Israel. Now, God has a plan to also bring in Gentiles. It's not exclusive. But as far as they knew, that was promised to them. Again, hints in the Old Testament of the Gentiles coming in if they would have studied their Bibles correctly. Jesus picks this up at the Last Supper. He's instituting the Lord's Supper. This is what we do once a month here communion, in the same way he took the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So that would have triggered to those apostles, new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 37. Um, that, That should have triggered, oh, the new covenant, what's he doing here? Well, he's saying, I'm about to ratify that covenant. It's about to be enacted. It's about to start. God's going to bring it in. How's he going to bring it in? Through the death of Christ as the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the only sacrifice. Hebrews picks this up when he said a new covenant. He's made the first obsolete. Again, not under that. Don't need that. Whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And it's going to disappear not long after Hebrews was written. Uh, The temple disappears. So it's really hard to live out the old covenant without a place to sacrifice. Hebrews 9.15, for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. He's the mediator of a new covenant, so that since death has taken place, so the death is what brought this about, ratified it, was the price for it. Taken, uh, place, death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called m- may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So who receives it? Well, he's writing to Hebrew believers here, but he even says those who are called. That takes us back to Romans 8, calling, divine calling. The ones who God changes their heart. Who gets the new covenant? The one that God changes their heart. The ones who have faith in the Messiah. The ones who follow Christ and believe in Him. In Christ alone, faith alone. They get the benefits of the new covenant. What are they? The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You get a new heart. The ability to obey God's law. The desire to obey God's law. Our desires have been changed when God regenerates us. We desire to obey him. We desire to follow him. That was the promise that was given to Israel, and now it's opened up to Gentiles that Christ has come. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So, what is the new covenant specifically? It's renewed mind and heart. We call that regeneration, forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So, it's very similar to what we call the gospel. I would say that the the difference is the gospel is the message proclaimed about what Jesus did to accomplish this. It's not equal. The new covenant does not equal the gospel. The gospel is a good news proclaimed about what Jesus did to accomplish these things. Getting a new heart, forgiveness of sin, receiving the promise of the Spirit. Also teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to go see a rabbi. Now, you should be part of a church and hear sermons and be built up in the faith. But you could study the Bible and figure things out on your own. Not exclusively. That was never the idea. But in the Old Testament, that's great. Glad you're a Jew. But you better go to synagogue or the temple and talk to a priest or a Levite. Because they're the ones who know. They have to teach. Nobody else really knew. And they struggled to even obey it. And there's going to be material blessings to Israel. That's why I brought up Jeremiah And Ezekiel also and Isaiah as well. It's not fully fulfilled yet. When Jesus returns, he will fulfill this last part here. Who gets it? Jews who have faith. Gentiles who have faith. Anybody who has faith, in other words. It's not just the Jews. It's also the Gentiles. You don't get in because you're born a Jew. You have to have faith in Christ. The New Covenant, it's it's an elaboration or fulfillment. You can think of it like that, of the Abrahamic Covenant. Remember, God, God said to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your descendants. Paul picks this up in Galatians and says that's coming through Christ, thus the descendant, Thus, seed. Uh, that's Genesis 12:3. Isaiah talks about a light up for the Gentiles. Isaiah says this, there's going to be a salvation to the ends of the earth. Micah, many nations, many peoples are going to come to the mountain of the Lord. How's that going to happen? The nations are going to be sprinkled by the sacrificial death. So it's there, but they chose to, to ignore it in the Old Testament. They chose to not focus on it. Like Jonah, they, they wanted to just run away from it. All right, real quick here. The church receives these spiritual blessings now. We don't get the land promised. That comes later. Israel has promised both of those though. So how's this apply to the church? We get the spiritual blessings now. The land comes later. The Israel's going to get it. We'll be having access to it as well. Church has not replaced Israel. There's a remnant of Jews who are alive when Christ returns. They're going to inherit the kingdom. That's how the promises to Israel are fulfilled, Paul says. Uh, Believing Gentiles will also participate, of course. So it's not a competition between us and the Jews if you're Gentile. We will um, pick up next week with this, finish it, and then what's our next subject? Anybody got a schedule? Y'all just have ignored the schedule like me the last few weeks. Is it the Millennial? Millennial Kingdom? Millennial Kingdom. So we'll start the Millennial Kingdom next week. Got to be here for that. That's a big one. We're saving like the most debated issues for last. We have to underline some of these things now, foundations, that we can understand the Millennial Kingdom and the rapture and things like that that are debated later. Lord, I'm thankful for our class today and our time to look at these covenants. You are a covenant-keeping God. You have a, a covenant love for your elect, whether it's Jew or Gentile. We're thankful as Gentiles that we got brought into the new covenant, one that was promised to Israel, and yet you've brought in Gentiles. You've grafted us in. We're thankful for that, Lord. Help us to thank you every day for those blessings and the one who brought it about, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.